I want to start by, I've uh, been holding on to a story all the way about seven weeks ago in Easter. Our own elder, Greg Jones, uh, gave me permission to share the story. So it goes that Greg was handing out bulletins at our sunrise service just a few weeks ago. And he noticed about at six o'clock in the morning, a woman, she's coming to get the bulletin and she has these dark sunglasses on. And so he says to her, very jokingly, very lighthearted manner, it's a little early for sunglasses, don't you think? To which she responds, I'm blind. (laughs) So he says, Pastor, I was there. I didn't hear the sermon. I didn't hear the music. I was just thinking, why, why, why did I put my foot in my mouth? Feeling so bad, feeling guilty. And so as Providence would have it, he sees the very same woman still wearing her sunglasses after the service. So he goes, here's my chance. He goes up to her and says, I just want to say, I am so, so sorry. I spent the whole hour. I just couldn't. I am really so I didn't know. I said, would you please forgive me? To which she responded, just forget about it. I was just joking with you, right? I was just joking. Jokes. Jokes on you. So, so, so if you are this woman, I am really afraid of you. Or, on the other hand, I think I might need to follow you on Twitter and Facebook because that could be an interesting journey with you. So good job. Oh, anyway, we have fun here at church, right? (laughs) Last week, we talked about the evidence of the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. What truly, truly makes a person spiritual? Faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, and all that is rooted or based on or because of the hope laid out for us in heaven. And so the real evidence that the gospel has taken a deep hold on a person's life, faith, hope, and love. So we went about to verse 5 last week. This year, this we'll pick it up in verse 5 through 12. So Paul this week begins to turn from the evidence of the gospel. These are the marks of a true gospel Christian to talking about what it looks like for a Christian to grow in the gospel. So three questions about the gospel as we read again in the book of Colossians. Number one, why does the gospel grow? Two, how does the gospel affect my prayer life? Have you ever thought of that? How does the gospel affect my prayer life? And three, what does growth in the gospel really and practically look like in my life? When I drag my feet, I'm not floating Ten foot above the air with the gospel. I am dragging my feet in real life. What does the gospel growth really look like in our lives? And so a why, a how, and a what question. Why does the gospel grow? How does the gospel affect my prayer life? And what does gospel growth really mean in my life? Let's turn to first chapter of the book of Colossians. We'll be concentrating today on verses 5 through the first half of verse 12. Let me pick it up again at verse 3. Hear God's word for me and for you. 
We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. With joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. This is the word of the Lord. First, why does the gospel grow? Paul, you might remember, is confronting false teachers in and around the church of Colossia who apparently were encouraging Christians to look beyond the gospel for spiritual fulfillment. Part of the Colossian heresy, you might remember, I framed it like this, a spiritual enthusiasm not anchored in Christ. And so as we get into chapter 2, we'll find that there are false teachers who apparently were saying things like this. Go beyond the gospel. Look to the worship of angels. Go beyond the gospel. Look to spiritual visions. Go beyond the gospel. Find spiritual power in festivals or new moon celebrations or even the observance of the Sabbath. And as Scott alluded to, I thought maybe for us today, we also have this heresy with us. Go beyond the gospel. Seek emotional, spiritual experiences in life. If you accumulate and bag a lot of these spiritual experiences, then you must be a good Christian. And so Paul wants to say to the Christians gathered at the church in Colossia, not so fast. Don't look beyond the gospel for spiritual fulfillment. You see, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing In the whole world, just as it is doing in you. Trust the power of the gospel to grow and bear fruit in your life. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God. There's a power of God in the gospel released into your life. So every time we look beyond or outside the gospel for true spiritual power, every time we moderns look to emotional experiences to supply what only the gospel can supply, we end up missing out on the sufficiency of Christ that's provided for us in the gospel. So Paul wants to say the gospel is growing and bearing fruit in the whole world just as it's doing in you. Trust the process. Trust the power inherent in the gospel to be released in your life. As I said to someone this week, don't listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. I don't know about you. Whenever I listen to myself, I can fret about the future. 
Every time I listen to myself, I can get anxious. Every time I listen to myself, I can get stressed out. But if I preach to myself, I'm reminding myself there is a power in the gospel. Jesus is sufficient for my need. I serve a faithful God. Why does the gospel grow? There is a power in the gospel for my life. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit. That is what the gospel does. But not only is there a power in the gospel. Why does the gospel grow? There's also a truth in the gospel. Look at verse 4. It is the word of truth. And Paul also stresses the universality of the gospel here in the book of Colossians. Paul uses what I would call rhetorical exaggeration to make his point. The gospel, verse 1 through 1-6, is bearing fruit in the whole world. 123, the gospel is proclaimed in all creation, all creatures under heaven. 128, Paul wants to present everyone mature in Christ. Next week, Paul reminds us of Christ's universal rule over creation and redemption. Why does the gospel grow life-changing power and a universal truth that's in the gospel? And so the gospel is authenticated not only by power, Not only by truth, but by the two working together. And in our culture, don't we have a saying that puts truth and power in close proximity to one another? Right? Speaking the truth to power. And so why do people feel the need to speak truth to power? Because often people feel that they have the truth, but they have no power. The others, there are others in our society, often in the political realm, right? whether you're on this side or that side of the political spectrum, there's people who have the power but need the truth. And so the idea is that in our world today, truth and power do not often align. In fact, the cynic among us might say something like this, one, the more one has the power, the less inclined the person is to speak the truth. And so with the gospel, it's not a half-truth and half-power. It's a life Changing power combined, working in tandem with the word of truth in your life. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does the gospel grow? There's a life-changing power. Working in tandem with the truth of God. And so trust the process. Spiritual fulfillment is coming if you continue to be seated and deepened and rooted in the gospel. Second, how does the gospel affect my prayer life. This seems like an interesting question for you, but I bet the first thing that you notice is the first thing that I notice as we look at verse 9 through 12. Namely, that Paul prays a lot different than you and I. Is this because the gospel informs his prayer life more than it informs my prayer life? I think that's the case. Many, many times I've had someone ask me, Pastor, can you pray for me? Pray for me. I need to make a decision. Pray for my good health. Pray for my grief. Pray for this family conflict. Of course, we should pray about these things. They are very important to God. But if Epaphras was a good shepherd, and we have every reason to believe that he was, based on Paul's commendation of him in verses 7 and 8. He is a fellow servant. He is a faithful 
minister. Epaphras might have and probably did tell Paul a bunch of the circumstances in the Colossian church. Paul, this person is dealing with grief. This marriage is dealing with conflict. This family over there is having a rough go of it. But Paul doesn't pray for any of those situations that were surely present amongst the Colossians. Rather, the Gospel informs his prayer life. How he prays and what he prays for is very distinct than how you and I normally pray. And so in verse 9, look at it with me there in the text. Verse 9, how does Paul pray? The nature of his prayer is unceasing. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that God, asking God that you, and then he goes on to the content of his prayer. And so Paul prays in an unceasing way, constantly in prayer. And what is the content of his prayer? Paul prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Preacher of the last generation, Lloyd John Ogilvie, once said that prayer is not so much placing our burdens on God's heart, but God placing His burdens on our hearts. And so Paul prays in this way, does he not? God, place your burdens on their hearts. May they be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what is the knowledge of the will of God? Is it just to take this path or that path? To make this decision or that decision. This is how we moderns typically talk about the will of God. For Paul, not really. For Paul, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God for us is to be growing in the gospel, to increase in holiness. Or as Paul says here, that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, increasing in wisdom, increasing in the knowledge of the things of God. This is the will of God that Paul was praying over the entire Colossian church. And so the content of Paul's prayers, I think, is very different than the way that we often pray. Let me get this slide here. Eugene Peterson, he says this. He says, left to ourselves... We are never more selfish than when we pray. With God as the great sympathizer, the great giver, the great promiser, we go to our knees and indulge every impulse for gratification. I don't know about you, but I want to say, ouch, ouch, ouch. Cut me some slack, Eugene, right? But do you think he has a point? Do even our prayers reveal that we are self-interested materialists? Closet materialists, good religious materialists maybe, but at the end of the day, materialists nonetheless. How do we change the content of our prayers to pray like the Apostle Paul? We let the Gospel inform our prayers. God's burdens for our growth in the Gospel becomes our primary burden. Yes, God loves your sick child. Yes, God loves your sick grandma. If, let me just get this straight. God loves grandmas more than anybody else in the world, right? I'm not saying God doesn't love grandmas. God loves when marriages become whole. But if we 
are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto us. And perhaps, just perhaps, the content of our prayers should reflect the content of biblical prayers. God, fill me with the knowledge of your will according to all wisdom and understanding. God, deepen my faith so that my faith is sin-killing and Christ-exalted and and gospel-saturated. God, give me the first things. Help me seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God, give me more of Christ and less of me. You see, the distinction between our prayers and biblical prayers is not primarily the distinction between the spiritual and the physical. As if we only pray about physical needs and biblical prayers are way up here praying about spiritual things. That's not the biggest distinction. Why? Because the Bible tells us to what? Pray for our daily bread. The primary difference, rather, between our prayers and the biblical prayers is the difference between the focus on self and the focus on God. In other words, Paul's prayers are informed by the gospel. The gospel constantly creeps into his prayers because the gospel is constantly creeping into Paul's life in an ever-deepening way. And so it's very natural that Paul prayers prays gospel-centered prayers. So you have the unceasing nature of Paul's prayers, the gospel content that filled his prayers. And what is the purpose of his prayers in Colossians 1. Look at verse 10. The purpose of his gospel prayer is that so that in order that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Walk in a way that puts God on display. This was Paul's prayer and the purpose of his gospel prayer for these Christians. Walk in a way that displays how much God is worthy. Fighter pilot Howard Rutledge, on November 28, 1965, his fighter plane was shot down in Vietnam. As soon as he got to the ground, he was quickly shuttled to what was known and what became known as Heartbreak Hotel, one of the very notorious prisons in Hanoi, Vietnam, where he would spend the next eight years of his life. He was once tortured for 28 days in a row and he found himself calling out over and over again, Phyllis, 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 the name of his wife, so he wouldn't forget her name. And these are his own words describing that horrific experience. He says, when the door slammed and the key turned in that rusty iron lock, a feeling of utter loneliness swept over me. I lay down on that cold cement slab in my six-by-six prison. The smell of human excrement burned in my nostrils. A rat, large as a small cat, scampered across the slab beside me. The walls and the floors and ceiling were caked with filth. Bars covered a tiny window high above the door. I was cold and I was hungry. My body ached from swollen joints and sprained muscles. He writes, it's hard to decide what solitary confinement can do to uneven and defeat a man. You're quickly tired of standing up or sitting down, sleeping or being awake. There are no books, no paper, no pencils, no magazines or newspapers. Months or years may go by when you don't see the sunrise or the moon, green grass or flowers. You are locked in, alone and silent in your filthy little cell, breathing stale, rotten air, trying to keep your sanity. 
He says, during those long periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. My hunger for spiritual soon food soon outdid my hunger for steak. I wanted to know more about the part of me that will never die. I wanted to talk about God and, and Christ and the church. It took prison to show me how empty life is without Christ. It took a prison experience for him to long to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so who brings fullness to you in this life, in this earthly life? Only Christ, Paul wants to say. As Paul says elsewhere, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Where does your fullness come in life? Philippians 2, 2, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. A literal translation from the Greek of Colossians 2.10. And you are in Him complete. Full. There's a fullness that is only found in Christ. So how does the gospel affect your prayer life? Have you ever asked that question? How does the gospel affect my prayer life? The nature of the prayer? Unceasing. Content of the prayer, gospel-centered. Purpose of the prayer, that I may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, because the gospel has worked itself deeply into my life. So why does the gospel grow? There's a word of truth that's universal. There's a life-changing power in the gospel. How does the gospel affect my prayer life? Third, what is... Growth in the gospel really practically look like. You see, the Apostle Paul, he was a good pastor. He loved long sentences. Verse 9 through 14 in the Greek is one complex and hairy sentence. In most English translations, they chop it up into three sentences just for readability. And so Paul, in some translations, is more apparent than others. Paul spells out four ways of walking in a manner Worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. What's the first modifier of walking in the Lord? Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. There's a question that we all have. Sometimes in the back of our minds, is it not? Can a Christian be a Christian without bearing fruit in their life? What if there's no fruit? Does that mean there's no real grasp of the gospel? Theologian A.W. Pink says this. He says, salvation is twofold. It's both legal and experimental. It consists of justification and sanctification. If those two terms scare you, we'll get to that another sermon series, right? Moreover, I owe my salvation not only to the Son, but to all three persons in the Godhead. Alas, how little this is realized today and how little it is preached. First and primarily, I owe my salvation to God the Father who ordained and planned it and who chose me unto salvation. In Titus 2.4, it is the Father who is called God our Savior. Secondly, I owe my salvation to the obedience and sacrifice of God the Son 
incarnate, who performed as my sponsor everything which the law required and satisfied all its demands upon me. Third, no less importantly, I owe my salvation to the regenerating, sanctifying, and preserving operations of the Holy Spirit. As Titus 3.5 so plainly affirms, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of what? Of the Holy Spirit. It is His presence and it is the presence of His fruit in my heart and life which furnishes the immediate evidence of my salvation. And so a faith, saving faith bears fruit. And a fruit-bearing life is the truest evidence of a saving faith. No fruit, no salvation. And so the message of salvation in the New Testament is not believe a few general things about Jesus. Say a short prayer when you're a child and then go to heaven. The message of salvation, according to the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament, is this. You are saved by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. But the surest evidence of your saving faith is a fruit-bearing life. As even the great Martin Luther once stated, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by a fruit-bearing life. For as Paul says, you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How? By bearing fruit in every good work. Second, how does gospel growth, what does it look like in your life? Walk, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then, what's second? By increasing in the knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but this strikes me as a really interesting combination. First, bearing fruit in every good work. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Why? Because we have in our church today lots of Christians who say, well, I'm an activist Christian. I like to do things. But it's, they're not really interested in growing in the knowledge of God. On the other hand, you have some folks that are increasing in their knowledge of God, but really have no interest in serving and living a life of action. And so for Paul, it's not either an intellectual growing faith in the knowledge of God or a faith-based action service kind of faith. Rather, it's a both end, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so are you increasing in your knowledge of God? If so, you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Third, what does gospel growth look like? How is this high calling even possible? How could we ever be fully pleasing to the Lord? Paul reminds us in this passage that what God demands, God empowers. What God demands, God empowers. The third modifier of how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. Paul is never ever going to cast you back down on the behavioral moralism that is so prevalent in the church today. If you are saying things like, just get it together. You're a Christian for crying out loud. If I'm constantly telling myself, Jason, just get it together. You're a pastor. You're a Christian. Get with the Christian life. Paul never admonishes us to do that. He always casts us back on God's power, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And I have a confession to make. When I first began to look at this phrase, being strengthened with all power, I thought immediately of my own family situation. About two and a half years ago, our youngest son diagnosed with autism. Less than two years later, we have 
Lisa's mother, my mother-in-law living with us, probably has Lewy body dementia. And so I said, okay, Lord, being strengthened with all power. Give it to me. We need it for our family. But then I remembered, being strengthened with all power is really to help me walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so I began to say things like this, Jason, do I really just want to be strengthened for second things in life? Caring for your children, caring for a sick extended family in declining health, these are important things. These are good things. But do I only want God's power to get through life or... Do I long to be strengthened with power in order that I may live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? Do I really long for that power and that strengthening in order to live better the gospel? To be strengthened so that my life may reflect and display the worth of who God is. God, give me a longing. Give me a want to for being strengthened with all power, not only to to get through these days, not only that life may go well for my family, but also, more importantly, as Paul prayed, that I may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul ends a phrase. Let me end it here a little early. There's four, but I'm going to take it three because of time. Paul ends a phrase, strength with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. N.T. Wright, British scholar, says this, Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what they show to an apparently impossible person. Are you facing an apparently impossible situation? An impossible person? God promises to strengthen you with all power. That you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with endurance in the midst of apparently impossible situations. And with patience with apparently impossible people. This is how we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks. Joyous thanks. That's really the fourth modifier of how we can live a life worthy of the Lord. To be so thankful and joyful that we have known the gospel. And so do it in our day. Do it in our hearts. Do it in our church, we pray. Amen.